Welcome to Planning Unplugged, a podcast series from planning lawyers at Womble Bond Dickinson. We operate in an ever-changing world of law and policy, so we're here to provide you with the latest insight and a point of view like no other. Welcome to a new episode of Planning Unplugged. I'm James Clark and I'll be hosting this episode on single-family housing. I'm joined by my colleague and Planning Unplugged regular, Kate Ashworth. Hi, Kate. Hi, James. And for this episode, we're delighted to be joined by Tom Willows. Tom's a partner in our residential team. It's great to have you with us, Tom. Welcome to the podcast, and it'd be great to tell us about what you do. Oh, thanks, James. Thanks, Kate. It's great to be joining you. Thanks for having me along. I should probably start with a disclaimer. I'm not a planning lawyer or in any way a planning expert. I rely on your brilliant team for that. So as you said, I'm a real estate lawyer in our residential team. The reason I'm here is I lead a lot of our transactional activity for developers and investors in build-to-rent all over the country, and that's both multifamily and single-family housing, and I know we're focusing on the on the latter today. We've had an incredibly busy couple of years with that, particularly single-family housing. We're fortunate enough to work with some of the biggest and best names in the sector, and most notably over the last few months, we've concluded a lot of deals for investors, including Hearthstone Investments, Gatehouse Investment Management, and the Carlisle Fund. So it's been a really busy time for single family rental and um, delighted to be here to tell you all about it. Great stuff. Well, thank you very much. So, well, let's start us off then. So for anyone listening who hasn't heard the term single family housing or perhaps has heard it, but doesn't really fully understand what it is, could you give us a quick explainer, Tom, and perhaps sort of explain how it differs from build to rent, which people might be a little bit more familiar with? This is where we get into, you can get mired in terminology, but I mean, first of all, starting with build to rent itself, to my mind, that's the building of new homes that somebody's going to rent out, not going to sell to owner occupiers. So that's the territory we're in. Broadly, that can be divided into two subsets. The Americanisms are multifamily and single family. The former being blocks of flats because you have multiple families in one building. The latter single family being uh, houses because each single unit, each single home has one family in it. Gets confusing because some people call multifamily build to rent and single family SFR. I think personally, it's probably easier if we all start talking about build to rent houses or build to rent flats. So suburban family rental, single family rental, build to rent houses. That's what we're, we're talking about. And that's typically the building owning, operating, investing in of new homes for rental, typically within suburban locations. One of the key differences with multifamily is the potential for scale. So in the UK, if you think for multifamily, you're looking at city centres typically, or large town centres, of which there's a relatively limited amount. If you think about the scale of opportunity for single family, it's pretty much any location where anyone would build and live in a house in any great number. So that opens it up in a huge way to suburban areas, smaller towns, commuter belts, Originally, we saw a lot of activity in the Northwest, a lot in the Midlands and then the South. It really is now truly national. And as I said, I think the exciting thing for us and other people in the sector is pretty much anywhere where you can build homes to sell in any decent numbers, it will work for single family rental or build to rent homes, whichever term you want to use. No, that's, that's, that's really helpful. Thanks, Tom. So when you're talking about selling homes on that basis, how are transactions then usually structured for single family housing? Good question. And whilst there are lots of combinations and hybrids and other approaches and terminology, I think it's fair to say you can broadly divide the transactions into two structure types. So the first I call forward commit, some people call turnkey, but that is in theory more simple. So if you're the investor, you pay the developer a deposit, you agree what they're going to build, what homes are going to look like, the boxes they have to tick, planning conditions they have to discharge, etc. And when they've done all that and handed over 
with a key and it's ready to let, you pay the balance of the purchase price. The other typical model is forward funding. And what tends to happen there is the investor will buy the land and that could be a phase, could be a whole estate, could be the footprint of some homes from the developer up front. They then separately engage with the developer or another entity related to the developer to pay them as we go along to them for them to build those homes for them. And again, practical completion and handover shouldn't take place until all those same boxes are ticked that I mentioned for forward commitment. But the big difference is there, the investor already owns the land and has typically forked out several million pounds for the privilege and so has a greater concern and interest in making sure that were they to step in to finish off the development themselves, they can do so at an expected cost and planning discharges, etc. are in their control. So that has advantages, but it tends to be slightly more complex. Okay, that's really useful. Thank you. So Kate, taking this back to a sort of planning perspective for a moment then, in your experience, what kind of planning issues can arise on single family housing transactions where the planning team's playing a, a supporting role? So as Tom's just explained, the transactions are structured in two different ways. But because of that that timing and when the investor is getting involved, there's just a lot more scrutiny on the planning permissions and the Section 106 obligations at a much earlier stage. So from that perspective, it's not a case of all oh, the properties are built and everything's been discharged and then people are doing their due diligence. It's getting looked at really early on. So I think from that side of things, the structure of the planning permission and the way the obligations are distributed is really crucial. So particularly if it's being done on a phase by phase basis, making sure that each phase is really nicely parceled up and the obligations and the conditions are nicely apportioned. The wording of those planning conditions can be really important. So quite often you'll have pre-commencement conditions and pre-occupation conditions and they're worded in such a way where at the end there's just a throwaway comment sometimes that almost creates an ongoing requirement but sometimes I think we would query whether that's intentional so the wording of those conditions is is really important as well and I think as a developer if you're looking at this option particularly with forward funding structuring the whole design of the site and the way the planning permission and 106 are worded so that phases can be really easily carved out is a really really good idea and you know I've worked with Tom on deals before and we've seen it done really really well but we've also seen issues crop up that just weren't anticipated or potentially forward funding wasn't thought about when the development was being designed for example if you've got a particularly onerous condition or some big piece of work that has to be done like environmental mitigation flood mitigation something that's going to be on a piece of land not being bought by the investor for obvious reasons, making sure that can be dealt with quite easily in a separate way. It can be discharged in advance of anything else. Just thinking about that and how that's going to be structured in terms of liability and indemnities as well is really, really important. And the scrutiny will just come at that earlier stage. So I think the planning permissions just need to be given a bit more thought for these sorts of deals. Yeah, I think it's interesting. As you're saying, Kate, I think when it works well in the planning terms, it can work really well. But I think there are always those exceptional sites where you've got something that needs to be done that perhaps is you know, site-wide or is, is integral to the delivery of the scheme as a whole. And I suppose, Tom, that's kind of where the contract needs to step in and deal with it. Yeah, and, and absolutely. And that's why we work with you guys and your expert team. And that's why we provide such invaluable advice to our clients. But I mean, all, all I can do really is, Kate's hit the nail on the head, just to sort of you know, emphasize that. I think in theory, those forward commitment deals 
deals, those turnkey deals, they should be straightforward. So ideally, before you complete your purchase under that, if you're an investor, the developer should hand you a nice, neat bundle of discharges and evidence of discharge of obligations and all those boxes are ticked. The theory is never quite the same as reality on most of these because you're going to have potentially some obligations, planning obligations that are triggered later on. You're potentially going to have some conditions that are ongoing in nature. So you're always going to need a bit of thought about, right, how do we get comfortable? What coverage do we have for the moment after we've handed over the money and we own these homes? One thing that's to bear in mind in all of this is unless the developer has planned the site with a high degree of foresight, and some developers do this really well, by the way, unless they've done that with a high degree of foresight and thought that part of the exit strategy is doing a deal with a single family rental investor, you often won't see that the planning obligations are exempt in terms of those investors. So owner-occupier, you will typically see in a 106, will not be on the hook for developers' obligations. A registered provider of affordable housing typically won't be in a well-drafted 106, but it's not always thought about that the single family investor needs to be as well. So that sometimes changes the dynamic. And again, if you can go into planning a development with that exit strategy or in mind, so much the better. It can make that transaction with the investor so much quicker and easier. And then in terms of forward funding, by its very nature, the investor is always potentially on the hook, as they say, for these planning obligations because they're a landowner. And again, unless there's been a high degree of foresight and they've been somehow made exempt, they're going to have to think about, right, what happens if the developer fails? What comfort you know, can I have? And that can take a number of forms. So that can be about money held back, so retention, late payment of profit, or it can just be on the other end of the scale that you're really comfortable with the financial size and covenant strength of that developer. And so you think, well, actually, no matter what that 106 obligation is, I'm comfortable that insert name of large PLC house builder here can always, always deliver. But what's true of both of those scenarios is you really need as an investor to do your due diligence around those planning obligations and those planning conditions. And, and I would advocate looking at that at heads of term stage if possible, because it is the sort of thing that typically delays a deal when somebody realizes there's a whopping great 106 obligation that falls sometime further down the track and nobody's quite sure how we get coverage for it. That's good words of advice there. And I think, as you say, to be borne in mind from the outset, ideally, and not thought about at a later stage. So let's zoom out for a minute. We've looked at the sort of commerciality of the deal and the structure, but more broadly, I'm looking at single family housing. There have been criticisms of single family housing, particularly in terms of land. Tom, can you explain what the main issues are? Yeah, of course. So I think one of the criticisms or sort of the first criticism is that as we're a nation of homeowners, Anything where large corporates, institutions, pension funds, etc., are investing in large numbers of new homes that are therefore not available for people to buy, that potentially invites some criticism. And that's we've seen that in the United States quite a bit, where there's some very big operators and investors who invest in a large amount of the housing. And we do see it a bit here that there is something of a stigma attached to that and that homes should be by default available for people to buy rather than to rent. The second issue is probably about landlord behaviours. So I think there's often confusion between the behaviours of the professional landlord sector and the amateur landlord sector. And in the latter, there can be some bad practices around standards, rent control, etc, etc. And as a result, there's often some ill feeling in the sort of less well-informed parts of the media about the concept of people buying up homes to rent out rather than selling them to owner-occupiers. 
And Kate, how about from your perspective, what sort of criticism have you seen? I think, as Tom said, this whole shift, it's probably a a slow shift away from home ownership towards renting. I think that will take time. And I think a lot of people are still in that mindset of owning property, but also in terms of inefficient land use. So suburban locations taking up lots of land. You can see the build to rent flat side of things that we sort of explained earlier is a lot more efficient and better in city centre locations. I mean, there's all the tension between retaining Greenbelt at the moment and all those other policy protections, biodiversity net gain, habitat corridors, etc., as opposed to delivering bigger houses, I guess, bigger houses and bigger gardens in suburban locations. I think that's maybe one of the main criticisms from a planning perspective. And then in terms of investors and large scale investors squeezing out small and medium sized house builders for the sector, that's definitely been put out there. But I know, Tom, I think you've got some views on that point and we can probably come on to the pros in a bit, James. There's some of the public criticisms. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it's interesting because in policy terms, you know, we've seen an update to the MPPF in December with a sort of tension on the one hand between increasing density and other measures such as not needing to review Greenbelt, as as you alluded to, Kate. So I think there is that tension about how you get the best use of land. But Tom, sort of taking it from an industry perspective, how would the single family housing sector, as it were, respond to some of the criticisms that are put to it? There's a number of real plus points that, you know, to my mind, maybe I'm biased, but to my mind outweigh those concerns. I think one thing to bear in mind is one of the things the sector perhaps needs to do a bit better is being more vocal about the the upsides of it, but the upsides are there. So, I mean, the first one we've talked about if an institution is buying up loads of houses, those houses are not available for members of the public to buy with a mortgage and all the rest of it. Well, there's a concept which is talked about in the sector known as additionality. And the point should be that these large amounts of capital that are all pointing towards this market should allow housing to be brought forward that wouldn't otherwise be brought forward. So that makes schemes viable that wouldn't have been viable. It means developers can build on estates that they were otherwise going to have to not build on because no house builder in their right mind is going to build a load of houses if there's nobody to sell them to. And so this money is actually unlocking housing and delivering housing. I think the other point, which is a sort of adjunct to that, is I know people in this country primarily want to own their own homes, but fundamentally we have a housing shortage and what we need is more housing of all tenures. And so bringing forward large numbers of rental properties is giving people the opportunity to have a greater choice of where they live. I think the other things to bear in mind are By and large, the sector is populated by professional large-scale investor operator landlords who operate to the highest of standards. So they have an interest long-term in these homes. They are not entering and exiting quickly. This is an investment for them that they're going to see some income from, but they're also going to see capital growth over time. They want the buildings to perform really well from an ESG perspective. They want them to be cost efficient, energy efficient in terms of maintenance. They want them to be great places to live that are going to be attractive to tenants for a long time. They want the estates in which they're located to be really safe, happy, you know, places giving rise to communities. They've got a long term interest in this. So I think the sector could make a bit more 
more noise about that because that's a real upside, you know, particularly around stewardship of estates. If you're building houses for sale, yes, you're going to set up the estate in a certain way to make it sustainable. It's your product. It's your legacy. But ultimately, you're not going to be running those properties for a long, long time. If you're a single family rental operator, investor, landlord, you've got a long term interest to make sure that estate is a really attractive, safe place where, where there are communities growing and, and people want to want to live. So I think there's a huge amount of upside with this growth in investor activity here. And perhaps we just need to, they or we need to be a bit more vocal about it from time to time. How about you, Kate? Yeah, I would totally agree with this. I think it actually from a sort of, I guess, a planning and a placemaking perspective, I do see this as a really exciting opportunity from a sustainability point of view and getting, you know, really high quality housing that's really energy efficient and that's kitted out with the best possible equipment, whether it be district heating or turbines on the site or things like that. I think it puts that funding in place so the housing we're developing going forwards can just be the best quality. And then from a placemaking perspective, like you said, Tom, people want to live in nice places. And so having that vested interest from the start in making sure everything is kept in a really nice condition and everything is designed beautifully, I think I just think there's a really good opportunity here for this to drive forwards placemaking and drive the standard of residential development up. And from another perspective, in terms of diversifying the rental housing stock as well, I think I can't remember the figures, but the rentals for this sort of housing are are really quite low at the moment. But I think the more that figure goes up and the more choice there is out there, the more people who might actually look towards this as an option in terms of renting, it does work really well in some countries. So there's Germany and Switzerland where this does work. And I think it's about 50-50 on the tenant home ownership split, which is very different to what it is in this country at the moment and there are probably a raft of reasons for that but yeah I think I see it as a real opportunity and something really interesting that could change the residential market in the UK. Great well thank you so obviously you talked there about the percentage that it makes up of our market but looking at it from barriers then barriers to single family housing Tom from your perspective from the market what does it consider are the barriers or the obstacles that are in place to more single family housing coming forwards and then maybe Kate can come in from a planning perspective on any barriers. Yeah, so there's um there's an interesting dichotomy at play really in that in this country the large house builders in particular and some other large developers are extremely efficient and fantastic at acquiring land and getting planning permissions and then you know when the market's there delivering those homes. And so if you're investing in single family rental, you are necessarily reliant on that market for delivering some of your product. There are other ways to market, but they have a huge place in the market. And so at the moment that, you know, we've seen what's happening with the for sale market. So your large house builders are not terribly well incentivized at the moment to go out and buy lots of land, get lots of planning permissions and press ahead at 100 miles an hour. And so, so slightly counterintuitively, we do need market forces to adjust slightly to encourage the house builders and the for sale market to accelerate a bit this year. And, and hopefully we're seeing that that market's coming back a bit this year. But then if you're a single family investor, you want it to come back to a certain degree, but not too much. 
because you still want those house builders to be incentivized to sell their product to you as an investor. So there's a need for the for sale market to be buoyant, but not too buoyant, which is a delicate balance. The other thing to bear in mind is I think where single family rental works really well, particularly in terms of building new communities and sustainable new places, is where single family investors and operators partner with developers up front. And people like Vistry have this built into their model and do it really well. And there are, there are others. If developers and investors can go to markets, so to speak, together to find land, to build, you know, to work up planning, I think this works really well. There is something that can be done, I'm sure, in planning terms, in terms of policy framework and approach by local authorities to incentivize that, to encourage that. Because I think that's when you're going to get larger new communities of homes coming forward as well. So that's definitely something to think about. And Kate, from a planning perspective, what do you see as some of the barriers to single family housing? I mean, I think we've talked about the structure of individual planning permissions and obligations and sometimes the the scale of the infrastructure costs, I guess, that are needed to be put forwards could potentially be a barrier. In terms of policy perspective, I mean, I think although we're looking at this particular element, it's really we're talking about housing delivery as well, aren't we? Not to forget that just to pull it back. And we've always had a challenge with housing delivery in this country. And I think everyone's mindful of that. The green belt policy being strengthened, that in itself isn't going to help that kind of extension sites and housing being delivered outside of urban areas. And that, you know, the fact that it's not going to be reviewed or changed. And there's lots of cities that are really constrained by that. And then other land designations, biodiversity net gain and nutrient neutrality are just two of the other buzzwords in the residential industry at the moment that everyone's been talking about, but they aren't necessarily going to support or speed up housing delivery as well so I definitely see those as as barriers but you know not something that can't be overcome and I think you know we will get the right houses in the right places. Yeah I think that's absolutely right I think as you say it sits as in a wider piece doesn't it around housing which I think sort of leads neatly onto the last thought as far as we know this year is going to be a general election year and it does seem house building is high on the agenda. Tom anything that you've seen so far that might be a, a concern or an opportunity Well, what will be interesting about that is to see what the main parties put in their manifestos that's relevant to single family rental and delivery of new rental homes. So what we could do is come back in a few months time when those manifestos are in circulation and pick up the conversation again. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Right, let's end as we always do with our three takeaway points. I'll start off for ease, which would be for me on the part of developers really to build in flexibility into their schemes by embracing single family housing at the start and thinking about how it can be incorporated into their scheme rather than trying to retrofit it at a later point in time, which is often much harder to do and leads to a worse result. For me, scrutiny over planning it's having that early view of the planning matrix so at heads of term stage as Tom has explained when are obligations and conditions expected to fall due you know not just looking at kind of broad statements there are some preoccupation and some pre-commencement conditions really asking for that schedule of discharge and having a look at the detail and, and when everything's going to fall due would be crucial. I suppose mine's more of a sort of sector view for the market is I would implore those involved in the in the sector, particularly the large investors, landlords and operators to keep making even more noise about the point around additionality and a point around good quality extra housing and really get out there and tell everyone about the benefits of this model. That's great. Well, thank you both. Thanks both for your time. Thanks, James. Thank you.